0: Good singing with you again this morning. If you take back your take your Bibles back out and uh, return to Second Corinthians chapter six, uh, Pastor David read for us the text for this morning's sermon. We've been, as a church, making our way through the book of Second Corinthians, and we find ourselves here in this passage. We've got just a couple paragraphs to look at. Uh, the text for this morning was 2 Corinthians chapter six fourteen through seven one, and uh, this is where we left off last week. We left off with verse fourteen which says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And uh, that's, that's where we left off. And when we hear that verse, we almost immediately go, oh, Paul is talking about marriage. And we think that way because this is how the text is most often applied. But as we examine the immediate context, where we've been in our study, and then as we step back and examine the entire context of the letter, we discover that Paul isn't speaking about marriage at all. It's just not here. Uh, matter of fact, if we are familiar with our Bibles and with our New Testament, we know that Paul writes about marriage in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and Colossians chapter 3 and Ephesians chapter 5. But nowhere in the entire letter, the 2 Corinthian letter, does he reference the topic of marriage? So this is not a marriage passage. It can be applied to marriage. But this isn't about marriage. Now, that immediately becomes a huge lesson for us. So Before we even move into the text, this is just a huge lesson. When a potential application of a biblical text becomes the main meaning of the text in our minds, then we have missed the main meaning of the text, and we are greatly impaired because of it. It's a bummer. We hurt ourselves when we do this. Uh, For example, let me show you what I mean. If I think that this text is about marriage, then I can examine my life and say, well, I married a Christian spouse. Check, done. The meaning of this text has been applied. I I can move on without giving it any thought because I've done that. I've I've married a Christian spouse, so therefore I've applied this text to my life. But when I actually read the text and discover that what Paul is writing about becomes an application for me that is a lifelong pursuit, not a one and done thing, but something that I am to do continually from now until the time I see Jesus, that, that really changes the thing for me. This, this text applies to me today, tomorrow, next week, next year, and this text applies to every believer, whether they're married or single. So that's That's fascinating. So if this text, which we're so familiar with, is, uh, you know, do not be uniquely yoked with unbelievers, if, 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 it, if it's speaking more broadly than marriage, what is Paul actually getting at? What is he speaking about, and how does this passage actually apply to my life? Well, that's what I hope to do today. I'm going to seek to unpack, unpack the text as it is written, and then after it is unpacked, I'm going to hope to apply the text in the context that it's given, and then I hope that all of us leave here today with a much bigger, better and broader understanding of what this text actually means and what it actually says. Uh, before we jump in and actually plow forward in the text, uh, let's, let's do a, a brief reminder of ourselves of the immediate context. In the prior paragraphs of this letter, Paul has been defending his motivation, his message, and his ministry. His motivation is pure. He's motivated by the fear of the Lord and the love of Christ. The message of the, uh, his message is the gospel... His message is God made Jesus who knew no sin to be a sin offering for us that we might become the righteousness of God. So his motivation is pure, his message is the gospel, and his ministry is marked with integrity. His ministry is from God, for God, and unto God. His ministry is not about appearance or self-promotion or human applause. And so that tells us something immediately. Why is Paul prior to this statement, defending his motives, his message, and his ministry. Why is he doing this in his letter to a people who know him very well? Well, Paul is defending his motives, his message, and his ministry because Paul has critics in the church at Corinth. And the critics in the church of Corinth are not just hurting him, but they're hurting the church. And they're hurting the church by pulling the church in a contrary direction than the direction that God would have it to go. So prior to this sentence here that's on the screen... Prior to this, Paul has a lot to say about his character and his conduct and the content of his message because he's going to call out the people in the church who are false, who he calls in chapter 11 deceptive. He says they have disguised themselves as servants. I almost said serpents. That'd be a good interpretation for them. Serpents of righteousness, servants of righteousness. Of righteousness. They've disguised themselves that way. They're actually corrupt, and they're corrupting the church. So that surrounding context begins to provide us some help as it relates to the understanding of this passage. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Paul recognizes that in the church in Corinth, not only does he have personal critics, but he has people there who are deceptive and disguising themselves, masquerading as servants of righteousness. And they've risen to the place of leadership in the church. And Paul is warning them, hey, don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. All right, the text for this morning is 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 through 7. 1. And uh, how I'm going to break down the text for you this morning, it's, it's a short text, it's only two paragraphs, but I've got six steps that we're going to take. We have exhortation, argumentation, affirmation, foundation, conclusion, and then application. How's that sound for you? So for those of you who are taking notes, you can write those down because we're going to look at each part of those and we're going to see that it comes right out of the text. And so each part of those steps will come right out of the biblical text this morning. We'll begin with exhortation and that's found in verse 14 where it says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. That is the clear, concise imperative As God's people, that's who Paul is writing to, he's writing to the church, as God's people, people who have heard and believed the gospel, and who have been converted by its power and truthfulness, and who have consequently placed their faith in Jesus Christ, as God's people, he's saying, don't be joined in partnership with people who are not God's people. Don't be unequally yoked. That that may make our minds run back to the Old Testament, where Moses would have wrote, And in the law would say, hey, when you're plowing your fields, don't yoke an ox with a donkey. You just don't do that. They don't pull the same way. And so for you and I, we we don't put a cat in a birdcage. They don't go together. And we don't put a bird in a fishbowl. They don't go together. Paul is saying here, the clear exhortation is, believers are not to be joined in union with unbelievers. Now, immediately following that exhortation, Paul gives us in the text five rhetorical questions, and those five rhetorical questions become the argument that supports the exhortation. Why? Why are believers not to be yoked with unbelievers? Well, here's the five rhetorical questions. They begin in verse 14, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What partnership has righteousness with wickedness? And if you're confused about what righteousness and wickedness is, just go back and read the portion of your Old Testament that was written by the prophets. Because they often put lists of wickedness and righteousness side by side. So if you're unclear about what righteousness and wickedness is, just go back and read the the latter portion of the Old Testament. It'll be very clear to you. And it won't be confusing because they're opposites. So what partnership has righteousness with wickedness? He goes on to say, what fellowship has light with darkness? Light eradicates darkness. Light comes into a room, if you will, and the darkness leaves. They don't coexist in the same space. He goes on to say, what accord has Christ with Belial? Belial is the prince of demons, so he's saying, are are, are Christ and Satan, are they in league? Do they labor together? Do they cooperate? Do they work together? Of course not. What portion does a believer have with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? So the God whom we worship, the God who has commanded that we make no idols, The God who has commanded that we have no idols, the worship of that God, our God, and idolatry, it just isn't a thing. They're actually contradictory. So the exhortation is, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. The question would be, say, why? Because believers have no partnership, no fellowship, no accord, no portion, no agreement with unbelief and disobedience. So here's, here's the point. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Believers and unbelievers are moving in opposite directions. They don't pull together. They're not going the same way. If they were yoked together, there would be conflict. Following the argument, we have an affirmation. Where is the affirmation found in the text? Well, look at verse 16, where we left off. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? Here's the affirmation For we are the temple of the living God. God dwells in us. That's staggering. We are the temple of the living God. God, by His Spirit, through the power of the gospel, opened our eyes to see Jesus. His value, His beauty, His desirability. God, by His Spirit, through the power of the gospel, opened our eyes to see Christ, opened our ears to hear the good news, and then moved in our hearts to desire Jesus, and then to follow him as opposed to going our own ways. A Christian is a person who has been joined to Jesus by faith. He is in Christ. Christ is in him. And as this text says, we are the temple of the living God. That's amazing. That's amazing. In the Old Testament, God dwelt in a temple. And people used to go to the temple in Jerusalem and worship him. New Testament reality is now through faith in Jesus Christ, Christ dwells in us. The spirit of Christ dwells in us as a deposit. It's not the full thing. We're waiting for Jesus Christ to return and God's gonna dwell on Main Street with us. Heaven and earth is gonna be converged and God is going to dwell with us. There will be no temple in heaven. There'll be no churches in heaven. But in the present, we are the temple. That's that's staggering. What a great affirmation. The, the, this building that we come to on Sunday morning, this is not the house of God. We are the house of God. God dwells in us. In Paul's prior letter to the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul refers to our bodies being the temple of the Holy Spirit. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he also refers to the church community being the temple of the Holy Spirit. And today as Christians, we don't make pilgrimages to Jerusalem to worship God at a temple. No, Jesus has made God globally accessible. He has replaced the temple through faith in Christ. We are in Christ, Christ is in us, and we are that temple. In this context, then, the temple of the living God has no room. It has no place. It has no quarter for idolatry, for anything that is anti-God. So let's follow this argumentation along. The exhortation is, as God's people, don't be joined to people who are not God's people. That's the clear exhortation. The argument is, believers and unbelievers are moving in the opposite directions. The affirmation is, we are the temple of God. What's the foundation for this argument? The promises of Scripture. Look back at verse 16, where we left off. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, and he's going to quote an amalgamation of Old Testament text. He's going to quote from Ezekiel and Leviticus and 2 Samuel. He's going, to, he's going to put this all together in a unique paragraph. Let's read it together. God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. These are Old Testament promises that are pointing toward New Testament realities. And this is the foundation for what Paul is saying. So he's not making this up. He's not inventing this. God has promised this. And this is how God now relates to his people. He closely identifies himself with them. The beauty of these Old Testament quotes is the reality that God calls himself Father. Jesus taught his disciples to pray, pray this way, our Father who art in heaven, mind-blowing for them. They used to call God Yahweh, and they would spell it without all the continents there. All the, you know, they, they would put it all together because they were, that God was so holy. And now Jesus is coming along and saying, hey, God relates to you as, call him heavenly Father, Father. And he relates to his people as sons and daughters. There is no greater privilege than being in this kind of relationship with God. There's no, there's no greater privilege than being in this kind of relationship, of being a child, a dearly loved child of God. Can you think of anything better? Being in this kind of relationship with God provides the impetus, the drive, the desire. For separating ourselves from anything that is anti-God. If God is not desirable, you and I will desire other things. And we'll cling to them. And we'll forfeit the grace that could be ours, Jonah would say. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. God now relates to his children as dearly loved children. He relates to them as a father. And being in this kind of relationship gives us the desires for separating ourselves from anything that is anti-God. These promises, according to Paul, these promises to us, these are precious promises. God is incredible. He says, we are the temple of the living God. This is grace to us. We are the sons and daughters of God. This is love unimaginable. God identifies with us as his very own, holding on to him because he is so desirable, holding on to him, Gives us no hands for holding on to inferior things. What this text calls in verse 17, unclean things. So here's the text Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Why? Believers and unbelievers are moving in the opposite direction. What's the affirmation? We are the temple of the living God. Where is this all coming from? The promises of Scripture. What is the conclusion? Well, don't marry an unbeliever. That's not the conclusion. The conclusion we find in verse 1 of chapter 7. Since we have these promises, great and precious promises, since we have these promises beloved as dearly loved children, here's the conclusion. Let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit. In other words, if we're the temple of the living God, let's clean house. Well, let's clean house completely. Bringing holiness or sanctification to completion, sanctification to perfection in the fear of God. Since we have these promises, they're, they're promises, they're deposits, they're guarantees, we walk by faith, not by sight. We, we believe these promises. Since we have these promises and because we are the dearly loved children of God and God has made that clear through Jesus Christ who died for us and rose for us and secured our salvation, since we have these promises and because we are God's dearly loved children, we have God-inspired desires to part from, to shed To get away from that which is displeasing to him. So, what's the conclusion? Since we belong to God, let's live entirely unto him, bringing holiness to completion in the reverence or the fear of God. That applies to everyone in the church, married or unmarried, and it has nothing to do with marriage. It can apply to marriage, the union of marriage. But, but he's not talking about marriage at all. What God has begun in us, God began a great work in us. Through the power of the gospel, we've heard about Jesus, we've believed Jesus, we saw him as desirable, and we've placed our faith in Jesus Christ. We're now followers of Jesus Christ. Our sanctification, our salvation is complete. Our sanctification has begun. What God has begun in us, let us now work with God in bringing to completion what he has started bringing it to a fitting conclusion, and let us be yoked with others who are moving in the same direction. Let us not be yoked with those who are moving in an opposite direction. That would be frustrating to us as a congregation. Frustrating in the least, disastrous in the worst case. So in living entirely unto God, we will be greatly helped. We will be helped by being yoked with people who are going the same way. God's people are to be pulling together. God's people are to be pulling in the same direction. So don't get yoked with people who aren't going in God's way. To use the metaphors of the text, if we're the temple, well, let's keep cleaning house. You and I, we we brought a lot of junk into this new life from our old life. We have a lot of past experience, we have a lot of past knowledge, we, have, we, we, we know how the old life used to work, and we've come to discover that that life was destroying us and destroying others and ultimately leading us to condemnation, so we, we, we were brought into this new life, we're now the temple of the living God, we brought a lot of junk along with us, let's keep cleaning house, getting rid of that which defiles us, and let's help one another do that, because you've got junk too, <laughs> I've got junk and you've got junk, so let's help one another keep cleaning house, because we are the temple of the living God. If we are his family, if we are his dearly loved children, as it says here, we call him father and he relates to us as his dearly loved children, and if God is our father, then let's do what pleases him. Do you remember growing up as a kid? If you had a good father, you wanted to please dad. You wanted to do the things that made dad proud. You wanted to do the things that dad would say, love that, great job. So so Paul is saying here, if we are God's family and God is our father, well, let's do what is pleasing to him and stop doing what pleases ourselves. Let's learn together what pleases the Lord, and then let's do that together. And we'll be helped by being yoked to people who are doing that. Because if we get yoked to people who aren't doing that, we're going to get pulled aside. Finally, if we are believers, let's not be partnered with unbelievers, because there's just no fellowship between belief and unbelief, and between obedience and disobedience. So, here's the text. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Believers and unbelievers are moving in the opposite direction. We are the temple of the living God. The promises of Scripture are the foundation for all of this. Let's live entirely unto Him. How are we going to apply this? How are we going to apply this? Well, how was it applied then? How was it applied then? In Paul's day, again, I'm going to go back into the context, Paul knew that the Corinthian church was being hindered and harassed and pulled aside by what he calls deceitful workmen in chapter 11. He talks about them repeatedly throughout the letter, but when he gets to the near the end of the book, he actually starts naming them, calling them out. He calls them deceitful workmen. He calls them people who were disguised as servants of righteousness. These ungodly people who paraded themselves as righteous leaders were pulling the church in an anti-God direction, and Paul is saying, don't get yoked up with them. In order for the Corinthians to see through this crafty disguise of the false leaders because they're slippery, they're slippery like Satan is slippery, how are you going to notice them? I feel like pausing here for a while. I'm going to pause here for a moment. Do you think the church is badgered today by false workmen? Deceptful leaders? Well, how do you recognize them? Now, we've got this local church here, and we, we get to know one another pretty well. We do church together. We meet together every Sunday. But, man, the, the big C church, you can listen to podcasts all day long, and there's books, and there's Christian radio, and there's Christian television. How, how are you going to pick out the good guys from the bad guys? Paul's getting at. How are you gonna do it? Well, how did the Corinthians church do it? You see, in order for the Corinthians to see through the, the disguise of the people who are slippery, Paul makes it very plain to them in the prior chapters and in the chapters that follow, he makes plain to them his character, what he's like. And he tells them about his conduct. What he's doing. And he makes very clear to them over and over and over the content of his message. And then in the immediate context, he's talking about his motives and his ministry and his message. And he's giving this over and over and over so that they can see with clarity. And they can put Paul right alongside. Paul wasn't there among them. He's off here traveling and speaking and planning churches but he's writing them, making it very clear to them so that they can put Paul's life right alongside the other influencers and see with clarity who is leading the church toward godliness and who is not. And this is a very important project and something that the modern church must continually do. So see how this, see how this application is so much bigger than don't marry an unbeliever? The church has to do this Every generation, it has to do it continually. Who are the influencers in the church? I could ask you specifically, who are the influencers in your life? Who's influencing you? Who are your biggest influencers? Who are the influencers in the church, and what direction are they going? Well, how do you know what direction they're going? Look at the outcome of their life. Look at the outcome of their life. And then the message is, yoke yourselves with those who are heading toward godliness. Yoke yourself with those who have actually been yoked with Jesus and steer clear of those who don't know where they're going, don't know what they're believing, don't know what they're doing, and who are ultimately pulling in another direction. As God's people, be, be joined to those who are bringing Beauty and perfection and glory to completion in the fear of God. And don't be joined to those who are not. So, as you think this through, Paul was motivated by the fear of the Lord and the love of Christ. He was motivated to proclaim the good news, the good news of the glory of the blessed God who mercifully is saving sinners unto himself through the work of Jesus Christ. And Paul's motivation and his message and his ministry were marked with integrity. You looked at Paul's life and you didn't have any question where he was going. Yeah, had no question. And you looked at the wake of Paul's life, and you had no question what his life was producing. No question. And that kind of ministry that Paul keeps talking about over and over in his letter, he's so personal in this letter, he keeps talking about his character and his conduct and his content of his message, and he, he, he's doing this over and over. That, it's because that kind of ministry that Paul had is easily contrasted with ministries that are built on human applause and outward appearance. And then Paul's message is so different from the other messages. Uh, The the powerful message of the gospel that actually changes lives is easily contrasted with motivational speeches of self-improvement and self-empowerment as people work harder at being better but remain (laughs) self-absorbed. You see, Paul's message wasn't, I want you to be a better you. Paul's message was, be reconciled to God through faith in Jesus Christ. And then having been brought into God's family, Bring holiness to completion in the fear of the Lord. Be workers together with him. So Paul loved the church. And as we read this letter, we discover that he is laboring in his writing and in his ministry and in his preaching. But Paul is laboring in his writing to to move that church toward a pure and undivided devotion to Jesus Christ. Because he knows there's nothing better for that church to be devoted to. By way of application, you know, what about our church today? Paul's writing to the Corinthian church. Well, what about our church today? We're not a perfect church. We've got a long way to go. We're still bringing holiness to completion in the fear of the Lord. But as a church, while we're not a perfect church, Jesus is our vision, and He is the perfect one. And so, if you want to know, hey, what what direction is this church going? That's the direction we're going. We don't have our eyes on another leader. We don't have our eyes focused on another pastor. We're not modeling our church after another church's ministry. We're not looking at church some church in Las Vegas or Dallas, Texas or California and like, we want to be like them. They are so cool. We're not going that way. Maybe... no, I won't go there. We're not going that direction. Our vision is Jesus Christ. Because there's no greater vision, he's the perfect one. And as individuals, we want to be moving his direction, and corporately as a church, we want to be moving his direction. We want to reflect Jesus Christ. We want to be more like him. I understand we are unique temperaments and personalities and individuals, but we are being perfected as we fix our eyes on Jesus and yoke ourselves with one another and move that way. And we want to have such a a church corporate culture that we're moving that way together so that when people come alongside and they want to pull us off in another direction, they're the ones who face resistance. Like, man, I just don't fit here. This this church, we want to be fixed on Jesus Christ. Uh, We say regularly our purpose and our passion is to bring God pleasure. He's our Heavenly Father. We want to please Him. We can please Him. He's not hard to please. We please him when we believe him, when we take him at his word. And then we put it into practice. And we understand when we put it into practice that God actually provides us the power to do it, which we couldn't do before. And so we want to bring God pleasure by believing his word and putting it into practice by faith, and then we're met with God's power and God is glorified in our life. And as a church, we value the sovereignty of God, the supremacy of Jesus Christ, and the... The sufficiency of the Holy Spirit and the standard of God's Holy Word and the sanctity of every person made in God's image and the salvation and sanctification of mankind by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ and the sacrifice and service of God's people to advance His fame and word and deed. We're not unclear where we're going. We know what our mission is. We know what our values are. We practice and we prioritize the, the people of God and the Word of God and remembering Jesus in prayer. We, we know where we're heading. We got our eyes on Jesus, we got our minds fixed in God's word, and and we want to be yoked with people who are going that way, going that direction. So this is the direction we're pulling. We're not unclear about it. Man, if you're heading that way, jump in with us. And if you're not heading that way, I hope you run into some real brick walls here. (laughs) Like there's just not a yoke space for me, because this this is the way we're going. All right, we've got more in this context and uh, we'll look at it next week. We'll look at chapter seven, verse two through the end of the chapter, which takes us down to verse 16. So a couple more paragraphs to to cover next week. Let me close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we recognize and call you Heavenly Father. And we haven't entered into this relationship on our own merits. We've come on the merits of Jesus Christ. Uh, We were your enemies. We were cut off from you. And we were cut off from you because of our own rebellion, our own unbelief and disobedience and and sinfulness. But yet you loved us and you set your affection upon us. You just didn't say you loved us, you showed us your love. And Christ came and Christ loved us and told us the truth and showed us the way and then showed his power by dying for enemies. He didn't crush enemies, he died for enemies. He died for them so that he might reconcile them to you. And so we're grateful for Jesus' power and for his display of it. We're grateful for his dying for our sin. We thank you for his powerful resurrection, guaranteeing and securing our ultimate salvation and our resurrection. And we thank you that through faith in Jesus, we are joined to you in such a vital union that you relate to us as your dearly loved children. We stand in awe of the fact that somehow we have become, by grace we have become, the temple in which you dwell by your spirit, a promise, a deposit awaiting full fulfillment. And Father, I pray that as we today do life together, we would be a people who are encouraging and supporting and motivating and urging one another on to love and good deeds as we bring holiness to completion in the fear of you and in the love of Christ. I pray that we'd keep at it and we'd press on, cleaning house and becoming a vessel in which you are glorified. So this is, this is truth to us. And we're grateful for your word and we're grateful for the scripture and we're grateful for your spirit that teaches us and leads us in truth. And we're grateful for this church family and the fellowship we enjoy. Deepen our faith in you. Make clear our vision of Jesus. Keep our eyes fixed on him for your glory and for our good. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.